the perseverance of the saints. This morning, we'll deal with paragraph one and deal with the subject of the doctrine of perseverance stated or simply perseverance stated. What it is and why it's important, who it applies to, who it does not apply to, and also uh, with regard to how it fits into our life today. Uh, we'll see how far we get uh, with this this morning. But the perseverance of the saints. Uh, if you would like to, you can also turn to John chapter number 10, verses 28 and 29. So as we think about this perseverance of the saints, we're dealing with one of the five main doctrines of grace. It is the uh, P in the more well-known tulip acrostic, the perseverance of the saints. Uh, but more importantly than being part of an acrostic, it is a biblical uh, and sound foundational teaching in the Word of God. So we, of course, pay more attention to the reality uh, that it is a scriptural teaching. In John chapter number 10, uh, primarily, this is the passage in John that is known for uh, Jesus referring to himself as the shepherd and his people as the sheep. And it's towards the middle of that chapter in uh, John 10 verse 27 uh, where Jesus makes these statements. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Uh, these are certainly great assurances to those who are the Lord's, those who belong to him. Uh, Jesus is very specifically naming a group of people. Uh, those people are called his sheep. Uh, not every person who is alive or has lived is one of his sheep. Uh, it would be an inaccurate, uh, inaccurate, um, how would you say, uh, explanation to say that all people are sheep. Uh, that certainly is not the case. This is a reference to God's people are sheep. He also makes reference to not only are they his, but they hear his voice. He knows them and they follow me. So these are people that are very specific to who it is making reference to. And he says, and then he says, and the, the next part he says, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. And so there is no perishing in them. It does not mean they're not going to die earthly speaking. We are all going to face earthly death and leave this place. But what he is talking about is that eternal life. And then he makes that grand promise that no man shall pluck them out of my hand. Uh, we certainly are secure in Christ. We are certainly secure uh, beyond anyone's reach. No one can take us out of his hand. Uh, there is nobody who can separate us from him. Now in the confession, when it makes mention of this perseverance, it's made up, the chapter is made up of three different paragraphs. And really, paragraph one is, uh, to some extent, it's a definition. It's a defining paragraph that says, here's what perseverance is. Here's what it means. Again, who does it apply to? Uh, why is it important? Uh, let me grab my copy here, and we'll go ahead and read that 
Um, I did put it on the screen this morning, but if you, if you can read this, then your eyes are much better than mine. And I didn't realize how small it was until I brought it over this morning. So if you can read that, uh, you all are in really good shape today. I can't see anything but fuzzy lines. So uh, if you have a copy of it, I'll just, I'm going to read it straight from uh, the copy of the confession this morning because I certainly cannot see that. So here's paragraph one of chapter 17. Those whom God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end, and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, from which source he still begets and nourishes, nourishes them in the faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon. Notwithstanding, through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them. Yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraven upon the palm of his hands, and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. Now, just quickly, as we look at this paragraph, you'll see that the confession writers in the very first paragraph declared very clearly and very distinctly that there are those whom God has accepted in the beloved, those who have been accepted and those who've been effectually called and sanctified by the Spirit. That means that is the individuals in which this perseverance of the saints relates to. Uh, that is not a general statement of all the world being accepted before God and being effectually called. It is specific to what John was writing about when he referred to Jesus' speaking about, I know my sheep, they know me, they hear my voice, and they follow after me. But the confession writers did give a number of different things to consider. Uh, they also considered that these elect can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace. So you notice there is a promise against a falling away or falling from grace. They can never totally and finally. Finally refers to eternally falling away from grace. And once they have experienced that grace, that grace uh, will in fact last eternally. And here's where they use the term persevere. But shall certainly persevere therein to the end and being eternally saved, okay? They will persevere. This is not, they might persevere, that they might make it, not that they're, as long as their good works outweigh their bad works, but that they will in fact persevere to the end. That is a clear declaration of these who are in fact uh, accepted in the beloved. Notice again, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, from which source he still begets and nourishes them in faith, repentance, love, joy, and hope, all the graces of the Spirit. So while we are living in this life and while we are traveling, making this journey, uh, we are still going to be given the glorious gifts of the Spirit of God, the grace of God. 
Uh, He is going to continue to strengthen our faith. He's going to continue to give us love and joy and hope, the the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, This perseverance is is a beautiful picture of what God is really doing. Uh, Then notice it mentions, and though many storms and floods arise and beat against them. Uh, There is no such thing as a Christian life without storms and a Christian life without floods that beat against you. Uh, If your life is not filled with storms and floods beating against you, um, I really don't have any words for you. I don't really know what to say because the reality is that's part of our journey. That's part of our walk. Uh, we, are, we are going to face difficult situations. We're going to face uh, difficult struggles. But notice it says, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation. What can never take us off the foundation is those storms and floods. No matter how those storms beat against us, no matter how strong they are, they will never be able to totally or finally make us fall from grace. They'll never be able to take away our eternal Uh, security. Uh, They'll never be able to bring us to a place where God says you are no longer mine or the Lord Jesus himself says you are no longer my sheep. It now becomes that this is an eternal uh, eternal perspective that the confession writer certainly had in mind. Then notice it says the foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of examples in life about things we can be fastened to or things that we can be attached to. But I want you to notice the beauty. And this is one of the reasons why I so love how the confession writers spelled out biblical doctrine. Uh, they use terminologies and beautiful pictures. Listen to the, the rock which by faith they are fastened upon. We are fastened to the anchor to the rock of Jesus Christ. And fastened not by us grabbing onto that rock, not by us trying to find our own ropes to fasten to that that rock, but we are held by him securely that nothing or no one can remove us from that rock. But again, the confession writers also did not want to paint a picture that simply said your life will be perfect without trouble because they bring up some other factors Notwithstanding, through unbelief and the temptations of Satan. Now notice the confession writers acknowledge something, that during this journey of perseverance and during the perseverance of the saints, there would be periods of unbelief. There would be periods of the temptations of Satan, where Satan, in addition to the storms and the floods that are going to beat against you, Satan's also going to be very active in beating against you. Satan is going to be always active at work, either through himself or through the work of his demons. But look at this. Not only through unbelief, the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them. You realize that even though we're in the faith, it's possible for for a time, notice the confession writer said this, for a time we might lose sight of the light and love of God for a time. We might lose sight of him for a time. The emphasis is on for a time. Not forever, but for a time. There is going to be struggles with unbelief, with Satan, with losing the sensible sight of the light and love of God. 
And I love this. Remember I told you the beauty of the confession writers. Yet he is still the same. Yet he is still the same. And they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession. What are we kept by, folks? We're kept by the mighty power of God. The perseverance is not about you strong-arming through life. <laughs> it's not about how, how physically strong you have, how mentally tough you are, how laser-focused you are. You are kept by the mighty power of God. And therein lies the beauty of perseverance. Because it is, in fact, if we were responsible for holding ourselves in this faith and keeping ourselves anchored to this rock, fastened securely, every one of us would let go. Even more importantly, never, none of us would have ever grabbed on. We never would have started with Christ had he not come looking for us. So this foundation is secure. We're, we're kept by the power of God. We'll enjoy the purchased possession. One of the things that I think, again, this, this could preach itself, uh, we ought to enjoy what we are in possession of even at this very moment. The Christian life is not meant to be a get up every day and drudge through and try to make it until you get to go to bed at night and start over. This should be a joyous journey we're on even when the storms and the floods arrive and even when Satan's tempting us and even when we're going through periods, we should still know we are kept by the mighty power of God. I don't know any greater promise to tell you this morning than the fact that if you're one of his today, you are kept by the power of God and there is nothing or anyone or any nation that can rise up against God, dethrone him and take your soul if you're already in Christ. Now, you might lose everything this earth offers, but you cannot lose your eternity. You can't lose it for all, for all eternity. And I love these last expressions. They, be, they being engraven upon the palm of his hands. They being engraven. And their names having been written in the book of life from all of eternity. Friend, your name was written in the book of life before you were even thought of. Your name didn't just suddenly appear that day when you came to the realization and repented of your sins and believed on Christ. Your name was already written. He knew you, that you were his. Now, in that great mystery of God, how he moved everything around and converted us through the Spirit, it's a beautiful picture of salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. Leaves us where no, no place for us to boast. So I love the way the confession writers deal uh, with this perseverance of the saints. So why is this so important? After I've made you stare at the impossibility of the doctor's eye chart on the wall here. Let's move on to really what we're going, where we're going with the four main ideas about this. So many that are rejecting the teaching on the perseverance of the saints because they do not understand it properly. That's, that's the bottom line as to why something is often rejected. Man has a tendency to when I don't understand something, the easiest thing for me to do is just reject it. So if I don't understand it, then it must not be so. There's nothing more true, especially in the theological matters. 
When you have a conversation about theology with somebody who sees something differently than you are, instead of there really being a biblical discussion, often it says, well, I don't understand what you're talking about, so your perspective must be wrong. And really, that's the problem with the perseverance of the saints. It's what's wrong with the entirety of all the doctrines of grace. Honestly, people just don't understand what the Bible teaches about those things. It's one of the reasons I've said it's very, very important that our doctrine is not founded upon an acrostic. Because if it's simply an acrostic, it becomes what appears to be a theology of a man. We're talking about biblical theology. We're talking about theology that the Bible teaches, not what man teaches. This theology of the perseverance of the saints did not begin with people such as John Calvin. That's not where it started. He didn't invent it. He didn't create it. As a matter of fact, it wasn't really something even spelled out to where we would say, oh, we've never heard this before. He was taking the Bible doctrine that was already there, and they were simply putting it into a workable means. Now, some people don't understand this about this. John Calvin, his, that tulip came in as a response to the Arminian view that was already out there about man is the center of his eternal universe, and he has all the faculties within him to choose when he'll accept Christ or if he won't accept Christ, and he could do that apart from God. People conveniently leave that part out. They just think, oh, no, no, it was Arminius who came in response to the quote-unquote tulip. It's the other way around. Free will in its truest sense means that not only am I the master of my own universe and I'm the master of my eternity, but I can also lose my salvation. If you are a 100% proponent of man's free will, then you have to accept the reality that you also believe that you can lose your salvation. Now, variations of that have come around through the years where people are now saying, well, I'm free will, but I don't believe you can lose your salvation. You got a lot of problems you're gonna have to undo in the free will argument even if you try to change one of them. So the reality is the entire purpose of the doctrines of grace was to point people to understand that all glory goes to God in salvation. It wasn't to win a theological argument. That wasn't the purpose. It's not about winning the argument. It's about teaching what the Bible actually says and standing on biblical truth. So most of this comes from a misunderstanding. So the four main concepts, we're not going to deal with all these today, but the four main concepts are that perseverance only applies to true believers. Now, it's important to understand that true believers means people that are truly, as the confession said, those who've been accepted in the beloved, they've been effectually called, they've been sanctified by the Spirit, and they've been given the precious faith. Just because a person says they're a believer does not mean that they are a true believer. Remember, we've talked about this. A profession of faith does not necessarily equal being eternally saved. And, and quite honestly, that's where we leave it. We often stop people and we say, okay, do you have a profession of faith? And they say, sure, I have a profession of faith. Well, great, then you must be a child of God. What, are, what is your profession of faith based upon? So perseverance is based upon, it only applies to true believers. Secondly, perseverance of the saints means that all the elect will be finally and eternally be saved. Again, don't let the word elect frighten you. Mention elect in a lot of Baptist churches today and you're, you'll get thrown out on your ear. 
Why? Because they don't understand it. They don't understand what the reality is. Now, I've shared with many of you, I have been on both sides of this coin. I was not raised ever being taught and ever learning the doctrines of grace. I grew up as a free will Baptist. Now, it didn't say free will Baptist on the sign, but I believed in most of those things that Arminius would have said. I've been on both sides of this, and I can tell you at the time, the words elect and the words perseverance and the words total depravity and unconditional election and limited atonement, irresistible grace, these things, they angered me because I didn't understand them and I didn't have a response to them because I never learned them. But it was until I realized and I started, I, I got the Bible for myself and I stopped listening to what everybody else told me to believe. And I said, now it's time for me to say, what's the Bible say? And John 10 was one of those high water moments where I began to understand there's things I have not been clearly seeing because I've not been studying for myself. Uh, we don't take the position here that a pastor or an elder or any leader in this church has all the answers. We actually, and I actually have encouraged you from day one, you should be studying to show yourself approved and you should be studying scripture yourself. You should be in the word of God deeply every single day to know these truths. So this perseverance means the elect will finally eternally be safe. Thirdly, the confession states the elect are kept and nourished in faith and the graces of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that when we get there. And then fourthly, the confession does acknowledge that the faith of believers can be attacked. So you can certainly expect that. So how does this doctrine of perseverance apply to true believers? Well, true believers, we know, have a real, not mystical or fairy tale like union with Christ. They actually have union with Christ. They are in Him. He is in us. There is a real unity. The confession writers talk about it. We'll look at some scriptures that talks about it. They have been given genuine faith and they have been called by God to salvation. They are true believers. Okay? This is that first one. They are true believers. In other words, again, they are elect. They are the true saints of God. What the Bible does clearly teach is that a, professing, a profession of faith alone does not mean a person has genuine faith or they have been truly called by God to salvation. Jesus dealt with this on numerous occasions. One of those occasions is in Matthew chapter 7, which I think we've already covered this in other chapters. But Matthew 7, uh, if you'll look at verse 21. Jesus' own words were these. Not everyone. Not everyone who... Or says unto me, Lord, Lord. Now, I've always found this very fascinating because when something is repeated, it's meant for emphasis. And it's meant to show us that there's a sincerity in even the words that are being spoken. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. So just because a person says, Lord, Lord, 
with emphasis, with sincerity, does not mean that they went into the kingdom of heaven just because they were sincere about it, just because they said it with such passion. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, of course, he's talking about judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, Jesus was very clearly declaring that it's not just people who make a profession of faith who enter into the kingdom of God. For many, many years, that's all I had. That's all I had was a profession of faith, but I couldn't really tell you much more than that. I could tell you I had a profession of faith because I prayed a prayer, and then I followed the prayer up at some appointed time later, and I got baptized. My entire testimony of salvation was that. I prayed a prayer, I got baptized. I prayed a prayer, I got baptized. I didn't know anything beyond that. That's all I, that's all I really understood, and that's really all I took. But Jesus was very specific about those who merely profess. But he also dealt with, and I think even in some ways, maybe even more troubling and maybe even more eye-opening, he also dealt with people who had a temporary or what appears to be a superficial faith. So he gives us two pictures here. In Matthew 7, he gives us a picture of people that are convinced by what they've done. Lord, Lord, uh, why are you casting us out? To people who appeared to show faith, but it was temporary and only superficial. And most of that comes from Matthew 13, verses 20 through 22, where we're picking up in the midst of the parable of the sower. Again, it's difficult to just take these verses and not expound all of them, but most of you, I think, are familiar with the story. In verse 20, he makes mention of, but he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and Anon with joy receives it, or as a result, he receives it with joy. Okay, so here we have this picture where the word, the seed of God's being sown, and the, the hearer receives it and is joyful about it. Uh, they're not resistant to it. Uh, they're not pushing it away. They're finding great joy in receiving it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. That's the King James, but dureth. You may have a translation that says endureth or uh, it continues. I, I, I'm not sure which one you have, but it endures for a while, a time. Now remember, the confession writers, he wrote in that paragraph one about a time when you might lose sight of the love and light of God for a time. Now he uses an example of where these individuals endure in that joy, they endure in that faith for a time, for when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. Now, Jesus was very specific into how these would be noted, how you would know them. These will be people that the moment that they face some sort of tribulation or persecution because of the word. This is true context. Because of the word, because of the scripture, because of Jesus Christ, they will turn away. Like I said, there is no easier Christianity in this world than American Christianity. You can take that to the bank. This is the easiest place in the world to be a Christian. 
It's the easiest place in the world to proclaim your faith. I know we think we're under deep, deep persecution. We're not. Are we facing some? Yes. Is it what some of our brothers, brothers and sisters around the world are facing? Not even close. I did not come to church today worried about armed people standing outside our church saying, if you come in this door, we're going to shoot you dead. I did not worry about waking up this morning and somebody out on my doorstep saying, we're confiscating all of your Bibles. And if you will not renounce the name of Christ and turn us all your Bibles, we're going to bring you out in this front yard. And we're going to execute all of you. This is what's happening around the world. It takes nothing to stand for Jesus Christ in this country. It really doesn't. We, are, we, we in many ways, we've lost our boldness. We've lost our courage. We're, we're, we're getting frightened at the sight of our own shadow. We truly are. We're getting frightened. Instead of standing for what we know are the beautiful doctrines of who God is. There are people that we're seated possibly next to today who are temporary believers. It's superficial. And when the persecution for the word comes, there will be people that will jump off as quick as they can and say, I never knew those people. And that'll be, that'll be it'll divide family and family. Even Jesus himself said he didn't come to bring peace. He wasn't saying, I'm, I'm, I'm here to be a troublemaker. He's telling them that as a result of me, this is gonna separate your families. And it's going to separate you because there's going to come a day when you're going to have to take a stand. You're going to stand for me or you're going to stand against me. You're either an enemy of God or you're in the family of God. It's not one toe in one side and one toe in the other. So there is a superficial faith. Now, here's the reality. I cannot tell you today whether you have temporary superficial faith or not. You could make a profession that's convincing. But truly, we are kept by the power of God. So there's a lot to consider in that this morning. So it truly does mean that it applies to true believers. Secondly, the perseverance of the saints, as is on the board there, does mean that all the elect will finally be saved. They cannot fall from grace, become unsaved, or lose their salvation. Now that's biblical and that's taught in many, many different places. A person does not become unsaved. This hearer of the word who received it with joy did not get unsaved. They were never saved to begin with. They were never in the faith to begin with. This is not a loss of something that you were in possession of. But rather, this is the picture of what actually took place. Now, many of you have heard the term, uh, the golden chain of salvation or the golden, the golden chain of the believer's salvation, which is found in Romans 8. It's attached at, at verse number 30. Uh, if you do any sort of Bible study for yourself, you've probably come across this golden chain. It puts the, the sequence of the believer's salvation, it puts it in motion. Verse 30 of Romans 8 says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. That's the chain, right? It begins with God's predestinating purposes. Yes, the Bible teaches God's predestination. There was a time you would have angered me with that statement. I would have said, I only believe in predestination as it's attached to God's foreknowledge, meaning that God did what he's going to do because he knew what I would do with him. 
That was my whole foundation for my theological belief, is God is just dependent upon what I do. He just knows who will and who won't accept him. Now, predestination means he's actually the one that starts the entire chain. He's the first link in the chain. See, that's, that first link is what makes people angry. I don't, like, I don't like the fact that God could be sovereign in salvation. But you ask them the question, do you believe in God's sovereignty in all affair, in affairs of man in other areas? Sure. But I don't believe he's sovereign in salvation because that's just not fair. That's, that's the accusation against God. He can't predestinate whom he will because it's not fair. So not only is his predestinating purpose, that's how salvation begins, but it moves through calling, the calling, effectually calling his own to himself. Justification, which is our legal standing before God, and ultimately ends in our glorification. The term glorification speaks of the believer's final and complete salvation in glory or in heaven. That's when this salvation will be complete. I will stand in him complete. That's why we see verses like we will see him as he is. We'll be complete in him. Now, that logic, if you just follow it sensibly and use basic Bible interpretation, the way you have to make this Bible, this verse say something else is you've got to misinterpret it or you've got to take it out of context. It's clear in how this moves. It's clear in how this chain is linked together. Now, again, the promise is not the chain, just like the promise is not the acrostic. The promise is in reality, this is what God's word teaches. And this golden chain, as it's been defined, is very clear, it's unmistakable. All of those who are predestined, again, this is what makes people nervous, all that are predestined are called. Because of their predestination, they're called. Because they're called, they're justified. And because they're justified, they ultimately are and will be glorified. So what is my eternal security bound up in today? It's in God's eternal purposes kept by his power. That's my security. My security for many, many years was what I prayed and led me down the road of, did I pray right? Was I sincere enough? Was I doing it for the right reasons? I struggled mightily with that. Did I do it right? And for years, I begged people to do it like I did, and yet I had no real security in what I was calling you to do. Because my eternal security was wrapped up in what I did, what I thought I did. But no, my security is wrapped up in God's eternal purposes. Why are you and I part of God's eternal purpose that means that he called us to salvation? I don't fully have an answer for that other than the fact that everyone he calls, he calls to glorify him. So that every mouth that confesses, confesses salvation is of the Lord, Jesus Christ is my all in all, and I had nothing to do with my salvation. It was him and him alone. And I wander around looking. Now, what can I boast about? 
I have, no, I have nowhere to look and say, okay, yes, you're 99.5% responsible for my salvation, but here's this 0.5%. That would be boasting. Even Paul said, the only thing I'm going to boast in is in the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to boast in my preaching. I'm not going to boast in my knowledge. I'm not going to boast in how many converts I have. I'm just going to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Not what it offered to do for people, but what the cross actually did, which accomplished our salvation. Did not make salvation possible. It actually saved you. Now, that's a totally different doctrine than what I grew up with. Because it would have been on me now to look to the cross and say, now, what am I going to do with it? Will I make his saving grace effectual in my own life, or does God make it effectual by his predestinating and calling me to salvation? That's what's at the heart here. So if I'm kept by God's power, and I'm saved according to God's purpose, I can never, ever be lost. Folks, it's the only way, it's the only way I can face this life knowing that to die in Christ is to know I will never eternally be lost. I lived day after day after day scared to death of death. As a small child after I was saved, I worried, I kept myself up at night because I was afraid to die. Now, I don't want to die today, don't get me wrong. I don't. But I don't fear it like I once did. I literally couldn't sleep at night. I was afraid of every noise, everything that happened, because I was afraid, because I was not just afraid of what might happen then, I was not so sure about my eternity. As I've told you, and I use the illustration, I know it's like being a dead horse, my whole salvation was wrapped up in a red leather Bible with my name on it that said, you were born again on this day, and you got baptized on this day, and that's all I had. That was not enough to keep me secure in Christ. It wasn't enough. Now, that Bible, was a, that Bible was a beautiful gift from my parents, and I still treasure that. Don't get me wrong, because I still believe after all this time, my parents were putting me under godly counsel, under godly preaching, and putting me in a place where I was hearing the gospel. And it's still a treasured possession. But as I've said, I do not think that that was the moment I truly understood really what Christ was. I certainly didn't understand what my sin was. But I lived in fear. Knowing I can never be lost by the power and eternal purposes of God, that's consistent with election. Again, election, we studied that in paragraph. We'll look at that a little bit more in this. But we looked at that even in the chapter on election. God's purposes will come to pass. God's promises will be kept. God's covenants will not be changed. They will not be altered. If someone is in this predestination to eternal life, they will end up enjoying eternal life. It's difficult how anybody could avoid that clear teaching other than the fact that we just don't understand it. I pastored a church with a misunderstanding of this. I pastored a church with a hatred of the doctrine of election. I pastored a church with really wondering, is this what I really believe? So if eternal security is taught throughout the scriptures... Even the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.6 was confident about this very thing. He said, he who begins a good, a good work in you 
will bring it to completion. Philippians 1, 6, here's the, here's the entire verse. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. Who initiated the good work? God himself. Who performs it? Not you. He does. Until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. Again, don't make light of the fact that Paul was in prison when he wrote these great encouraging letters to these believers. Peter himself was also equally confident, 1 Peter 1, verse 5, that believers will be shielded by God's power so that they will absolutely and actually obtain this inheritance. Again, not in some fairy tale-like manner, but they actually will be shielded and will obtain. 1 Peter 1, 5. Let's look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Even Peter recognized we are kept by the power of God. It's interesting, Peter goes on and starts making mention of some of these storms and floods that may arise. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. In whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. It's, I always found it interesting how Paul or Peter started that letter by reminding them of where their salvation, where their security was in before he jumped off into, oh, you're in heaviness and temptations and trials? He reminded them of their standing first, and then he said, oh, by the way, those temptations, those trials you're going through, those are purifying trials. It's like going through the refiner's fire. And he reminds them of the preciousness that even through those temptations, and even though that fire, it's going to bring you to the praise and the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. And that this fact that you love a God you've never seen, you believe and you rejoice and you receive the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. You see, if you go all the way back and you even go further into John, or before John 10, if you read John 6, John 10, read John 17, read all three of those chapters in one sitting. Okay, if you, if you have a Bible study of your own and you don't have something planned this week, I encourage you to do that. Read them all straight through. Read John 6, John 10, John 17. Look at the picture it paints. It's beautiful. <laughs> it, is, it is the entirety of who we are and what we are in God. Remember, the whole purpose of the book of John, his own words were that ye might believe. All three of those chapters, they refer to the common theme concerning that the Father has given to Christ. 
He refers to the elect who've been chosen by God for salvation. They've been united with Christ. John 6.39 says, all that the Father has given to Christ will be raised in the last day. Not that they might be, but they will be. John 10, verse 28 through 29, which we read, indicates these sheep have been given to Christ by the Father and they shall never perish. No one is able to pluck them out of his hands. The security of the sheep is not in the ability of the sheep to keep themselves. The security of the sheep is bound in the power and the faithfulness of the divine shepherd. That's where the security is. He's keeping us. And then in that beautiful high priestly prayer in John 17, Christ has the authority. Now, authority is a big word. Remember, Jesus Christ had the authority. Even when the Pharisees and the scribes and those in the temple heard him speak, one of the first things they said is, we've never heard a man speak with such authority. They didn't say, he speaks with such eloquence. It's such beautiful speech. It just rubs off. He's speaking with authority as someone who is not just making something possible, but is actually saying what I say is. Right? Man tries to create authority in his own life, and he falls on his face. It's that, it's that power struggle, I want to be an authority, so a person tries to force themselves into an authoritative position. Nobody, everybody says, I'm not listening to you. He spoke with authority. This authority gave him the power to give eternal life, not to just make it possible, because he says that all that the Father has given me will come to me. And in John 17, he's praying for those individuals. He says this, I'm not praying for the world. Oh, it's another one of those verses, people, the free willers hate it. How could God say this? It's so unfair. But that's what he says. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those that you've given to me. And the argument often comes, well, he's just praying about the disciples. In the first part he is, but if you keep reading on down, he attaches all that are in Christ to the same prayer he's praying for those disciples. And guess what? We get included. He prays for his people. He requests His big request is this, and I know we're running late. His big request was this, give them perfect peace in this world. Give them no trouble. Give them no struggle. Give them prosperity. That's not what he said. His desire was that those that you've given me would be with me in glory. Now, if that doesn't stagger you to the floor, nothing's going to. Why would the king of glory want you with him? I don't know why he wants me. But then you get the reality. The reason I'm accepted is because of Jesus Christ. Not because of something that I am. Not because of something that I'm doing. It's the righteousness of Christ. He says, they have my righteousness. I want them to be with me in glory. I never heard that as a child. I only heard the plan of salvation is if you don't want to go to hell, pray this prayer. There's so much more. The Bible indicates that Christ's intercession, and this is important because we're going to talk about the throne of grace this morning in the worship service. The scriptures indicate that Christ's intercession for his people is an effective intercession. What he's actually interceding for is actually happening. Hebrews 9.15 
does make reference that all who are called will receive the promised inheritance because Christ is, in fact, the mediator of the new covenant. That's why we receive it. It's because of his mediation. Well, let's stop there for this morning. Um, I'm going to put off our questions for today because the questions are more attached to the next couple of um, of numbers three and four. So we're going to hold off on that as far as the structured questions for today. And I've run a little bit late this morning. So we'll go ahead and pray. If anybody has any questions after we're done, please come and talk to me. I'll be glad to speak with you. Hold any questions that you might have for next week, um, and we'll cover all those together. Okay, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we certainly do thank you for the glorious truths we've read and heard this morning. And Lord, we thank you for the Spirit of God that converted our souls and opened our eyes, made us willing to believe these great truths. Lord, I, I know if I'm honest with myself and with these people before me today, Lord, these are, these are truths uh, that I struggled with for much of my life. Uh, was not really able to come to an understanding or an acceptance of them. And Lord, I realized that it was not my intellectual ascent that got me there. It was not education that made me arrive at this. It was the Spirit of God and the Word uh, bringing conviction and enlightening and giving discernment. And Lord, if there is someone here today during this study who is having these same struggles, uh, they're having difficulty finding uh, where their part of salvation is and what they have to do with it or what they must do. Uh, I pray that you, through your purposes and your plan at the appointed hour, uh, you would open their eyes to these truths. Uh, Lord, I, I pray for our children. I pray for the children of this church. Uh, Lord, I pray that every person would make it a matter of diligent prayer, uh, that you would open the eyes of these kids at the appointed hour, that you would show them the truth of the gospel. Uh, that, Lord, they would be raised and nurtured and taught the word. Uh, Lord, help us to, to not stray and be uh, double-minded in things, uh, but to realize the greatest thing we can give to our children our grandchildren is the truth of God's word. Uh, Lord, there are so many things vying for our attention today, things that are pulling on us, things that are driving us to uh, moments of despair and discouragement. And, Lord, I, I pray that you'd help us to get our eyes off of the worldly things and get our eyes on eternity and realize that our greatest mission field is within our, the four walls of our home or our extended family. Lord, we know there are people all over the world that need to hear the gospel, and we're thankful that you've called and sent people to many faraway places. But Lord, help us never forget, as parents, as grandparents, as aunts, uncles, whatever our relationship might be, we have people, children, adults that need to hear the truths of your word. And Lord, we'll trust you because we know that salvation is of the Lord. Father, thank you for this study. I thank you for this church. Lord, just the encouragement that they are. And I pray, Lord, you'll continue to guide us and give us direction in our life that we will desire to follow you in spirit and in truth. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. All right. Thank you so much.